Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast, where we do deep dives into investing ongoing real estate news and regular market updates. We talk about how to structure deals, apply different strategies and grow your portfolio and basically everything you need to know when you want to become the best real estate investor that you can be. If this is your first time listening, welcome. Thanks. There's a lot of new people joining us, especially since the new year. If you're committing yourself to a new year's resolution, I appreciate that. We're glad to be a part of it and we hope to have you here for the rest of your life. Uh, if you're a regular listener to the show, welcome back. My name is Daniel Foch, and uh, I'm joined here by a wonderful young man by the name of Nick. Thank you very much, Dan. And what a lovely introduction. My name is Nick Hill. I'm Dan's co-host on the show. I'm a mortgage agent and real estate investor, and we've got a great episode lined up for you today all about co-signing. So we're going to talk about a few different things, what it is, why it's so prevalent now, when you need one, and how to get rid of a co-signer off of title. Also going to talk about affordability, home ownership, and of course, the Canadian dream, and the difference between drive till you qualify and co-sign till you qualify, both of which terms I believe you made up. Correct, Dan? Is that it? I'm not sure. I feel like there's no such thing as an original idea, to be honest. I didn't come up with drive till you qualify. That's for sure. I came up with drive till you quantify. Quantify, that's it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. But uh, but cosign till you qualify, I don't know. I feel like uh, somebody came up with it, maybe, and I was within the circle of people. Um, before we dive in here, I would like to read a review that left me personally feeling all warm and fuzzy, fuzzy and hopefully makes our, our uh, listeners feel the same way. Super solid show, it says. Great alliteration. I may not be saying much new at this point, but this show is super solid. Dan and Nick share relevant real estate investing news, insights, and education with humor. I honestly thought our humor sucked. I even told you this. So. <laughs> like, we need to be funny. Because there's another review <laughs> saying your jokes suck. Uh, <laughs> and top-notch production quality, managing to cover content relevant to Canada from C to C to C. That's actually Canada's... Uh, Headline on our crest, Amari Uska Admari means from sea to shining sea. You Big Latin. Latin I you know. knew it. You would know. That's <laughs> classic. Um, I've uh, I've been able to pique more than one friend's interest in real estate investing by recommending this show. Well, thank you. That's what we're hoping is we want people to uh, to share this this wonderful gift of knowledge. Yeah, love with, it uh, with all their friends and family. So if you if you're not DMing people episodes all the time, I'm not going to say I'm, I'm mad at you, but <laughs> I'm just, just disappointed. I'm a little bit upset. Don't worry about it is what I would say. <laughs> was something wrong, Nick? Yeah. I mean, look, we love to hear those kind of reviews. Thank you so much. And this is this is by reviewer 11222223333, if that is your real name. That's probably their net worth after listening to the show. Ooh, love it. Um. Anyways, let's get into the show, but let's first start off by touching on the word affordability. Now- We've heard this word come up a whole bunch of times in other shows. And if you haven't heard other shows, go back and listen. It is a topic that comes up, but it's almost a myth these days, often spoken about, but rarely seen. The actual definition of, of affordability and economics is the value of goods relative to the average purchasing power of individuals and families. 
So as we have discussed in multiple episodes, affordability is and has been for the past little while a very fast-moving target in Canadian real estate. So we know that the general rule was to spend about 30% of income on shelter. That seems I, to- I like how you said was instead of well, is. Well, I mean, I can't get anybody in the legislative or regulatory space to say that on camera anymore. So <laughs> in fact, you know, Canadians are now spending 45.9% of their income to meet housing costs, which includes taxes, rent, and mortgage payments, and or utilities. Um, unsurprisingly, in Vancouver and the GTA, people spend an average of 79.7% and 72% uh, of their income on housing, respectively. Interestingly, you know, like a lot of this 30% rule stuff comes from, um, you know, GDS and TDS ratios or crosses over with GDS and TDS ratios, which are underwriting things. And I'm sure we're going to get into them a little bit on the show, but basically how lenders determine how much mortgage you can afford. Um, and if you listen to episode 58, the hottest rental markets in Canada, you would know that both individual and household incomes are spending way more than the recommended 30%, even on rents, not just on mortgage ownership, both with Toronto and Vancouver coming in over 110% of their average, uh, average individual income, it would cost to rent the average unit in those markets. Affordability. Ha! That's what I have to say about it. Now, if you really want to hear some tear-jerking information, kind of cool information I found. Why don't we do this back and forth here, Dan? What I, I found this cool website, link it in the show notes here, and it basically goes through decade by decade from the 50s all the way to the 2000s, uh, purchase price and uh, type of asset class and the year that it was purchased. So for instance, the first one being the year 1957, the buy a detached two-story home on Chaplin Crescent on Avenue Road. Now that is a, for those outside of Ontario, outside of Toronto, the GTA, Avenue Road is a nicer part of town. The numbers, the purchase price, again, this is 1957, $30,500. That's not the, a mortgage payment. That's not a down payment. That is the entire house. Now type in an address, type in that address, I should say, and Sotheby's Real Estate comes up and the average price in that neighborhood now it's about $3 million. Just a casual 100x return. <laughs> if only Grant Cardone had figured that one out. Eh? 10x is <laughs> yeah. nothing. So, uh, let's do another one. Uh, the year 1967, Toronto's average home price is $24,078. The buy, a three-story detached home in Moore Park. The numbers, purchase price of $42,000. Average price in that neighborhood now, $2 million. The year 1973, Toronto's average home price had hit $40,605. The buy was a three-bedroom detached side split with a large lot in the Birchmount and Lawrence area. The numbers, the purchase price of $34,000. Nowadays, to get into that neighborhood, you're looking at an average price of $964,000. Man, I feel like you really turned on your uh, audiobook narrator voice there. <laughs> was that uh, good? You like that? <laughs> 1981, Toronto's average home price, $90,000, which is actually high. Remember, the lot, one of the, there was a market peak in 1981. Mm-hmm. The buy, two and a half story semi-detached home in Trinity Bellwoods. Purchase price, $81,000. Average price in that neighborhood now, $1.5 million. Let's take it 10 years into the future. We're now in 1991, where Toronto's average home price is $234,000. The buy is a row townhome in the beaches area. Again, an affluent area, 
just east of the city. The numbers, the purchase price is 169000 The average price in that neighborhood nowadays, a cool $1.7 million. Dan, take us to the 2000s. 2008. Good year. Bad year. Well, yeah. <laughs> Toronto's average home price, 379000 To buy a 430-square-foot condo apartment in a six-year-old building located in the entertainment district. Purchase price, $215,000. Average price in that neighborhood now? Probably about $850,000 for a similar okay. condo. Oh, sorry, 430, 430 square foot? No, we're looking at about eh, mid to high six. sevens. Yeah, six, sixes to sevens, let's say. Sevens maybe in the peak and, and probably mid sixes now. But enough of that nonsense. Let's get back on track. We're here to chat about co-signing. What was the point of that exercise? Basically, just to tell us that we should be investing in time machines and go back to all of these a little bit, or that all of those previous peaks were survivable. I, I think that might be the takeaway here, right? Because I mean, you know, you look at '89, everybody like the '90s. People thought it was over in this country. It was. I mean, I I did introduce it as a possible tearjerker, so there we go. But also, it was really just to show a bit more of you know. Back in the 50s, let's say, you know, you might be taking home an average salary might have been $10,000 a year kind of thing, yeah. maybe a bit more. And the purchase price was 30000 right? It's basically just to show that each one of those decades, we, are, we seemed a little bit closer to affordability. It is interesting too, though, 1981 and 1989, those were two peaks in unaffordability. And, you know, we mentioned this on national... National Bank's Housing Affordability Monitor about you know how we're currently approaching those 81 and 89 peaks of housing unaffordability, which usually comes with a bit of a correction in price or rates or something to make that equation easier. But in those days, you know, it wasn't so much this uh, systemically multi-generational obsession with owning a housing asset that it's becoming in present day. So what are we talking about today that is related to how people are kind of creating this DIY qualification solution to deal with this rising unaffordability today? So you've got options from a mortgage side, you know, during COVID, you might have gone to a 1.5% variable rate to get the highest qualification that you could. And today you can't do that. Probably the best rate that you can get to qualify at is in the fives and with the stress test, it's in the eights. So what do you, what can you do or what are people doing at, at scale to qualify right now, Nick? Great question, Dan. Thanks for that. Co-signing would be one of the answers I would give. Now, before we get into this whole thing, I did a ton of research for this episode and the data is very hard to find, but we'll get into that in the end. Now, historically, co-signing a mortgage was used when borrowers had poor credit. The two most common examples would be new graduates with either poor credit or short employment history because lenders need to see two-year history minimum. In this case, a co-signer was required for a first-time home purchase. Another example would be a borrower who has had trouble making payments on loans in the past, which has then damaged their credit history. However, in today's real estate market, even if you are able to get the best mortgage rate on offer, there are still good reasons to get a co-signer on a mortgage. Sky-high home prices, rapidly increasing rates, the elevated stress test, low wage growth, and strict lending criteria can leave all potential buyers short of what they need to secure a purchase. A cosigner adds that financial weight to the application, allowing the primary borrower to qualify for a mortgage they otherwise wouldn't be able to obtain. I like this topic because I feel like you know we've talked about other people's money. 
and a lot this of is kind of it's this is kind of blending into that. well it's interesting because people are always like afraid to approach a potential investor but you know if you're a millennial in the first time home buying position in the past probably 3 to 5 years uh, you know we hear a lot about in other people's money approaching friends and family a lot of gplp structures will mlms do this as well approach your friends and family first friends and family round of venture capital um poor friends and family <laughs> but <laughs> when you're when you're a first time home buyer and you need help on a on a deal you're often going to who friends and typically family right asking for a co-signer and so you've done you know you've done a, a sponsored deal you've had mom and dad you know a lot of canadians have done a sponsored deal by having mom and dad co-sign a mortgage for them so what's a co-signer a co-signer is someone who can help a candidate qualify for a loan or mortgage that they aren't eligible to to purchase on their own having a co-signer reduces the lender's risk by spreading it out over more people guaranteeing the loan and there's now more than one person responsible for ensuring repayment of that loan and that creates kind of chains of risk now in the in a downward market with a cosigner, a loan has a backup, somebody who will pay if the primary borrower doesn't. Lenders like cosigners, and they're more likely to lend with them. It can also boost your income by adding another set of income that's being underwritten. Parents may choose to act as a cosigner for their children, which is exceptionally common in Canadian real estate. Or you may decide to cosign for a friend or family who has a poor credit score. Uh, or you may be cosign for a friend or family who has a sick investment deal and needs to boost the the the, the leverage point. Now we're talking. Cosigners, yeah, cosigners and and primary borrowers are equally responsible for paying back the loan. This is a really important distinction. Let's look at the differences between cosigner and guarantor. So a mortgage cosigner versus a guarantor. Although similar, a mortgage cosigner and guarantor are slightly different, and here are the differences. A cosigner will have their name on the title. They will sign all the paperwork and boost that weak applicant that we were talking about. A lender will consider both the cosigner and the primary borrower's incomes and credit histories when determining the loans. However, loan guarantors are less common, and although they guarantee repayment of the loan, they are not on title and are often not required to sign all of the mortgage paperwork. So Dan, we've got a little chart here. Who do you want to be? You want to be co-signer or guarantor? I'll be guarantor because I don't want to be on title. Oh, you, it's clever. Okay, I'm, as a co-signer, my name appears on the title. As a guarantor, my name does not appear on the title. I must sign all the mortgage application documents as a co-signer. A guarantor does not have to sign all the mortgage applications. I'm personally held accountable for regular payments, even if the main applicant defaults. I would also guarantee that regular payments will be made even if the main applicant defaults. Well, that's nice of you. I am nice part, I'm part owner of the home. Now, let's clarify that for a second. Usually, that part ownership is 1%. That's the standard. I, I think, you know, that's like lawyers will typically water it down to that 1% because there's often a behind the, you know, there's a handshake deal of sorts or, or mm -hmm. you know, often a, often a paper deal. Um, but, you know, these the most common arrangements for this are friends and family. So there's like the, an implied trust, I think, in a lot of cases. Yeah. I've never heard stories of, of them going sideways. But, uh, you know, I haven't heard stories of the market going sideways like it, like it just did either. So, 
Um, as a guarantor, I would not own any part of the home. So I wouldn't go on title. I would be guaranteeing the loan. And one of the distinctions here is it's less likely for that loan to end up on my credit bureau, but it also is a layer of privacy protection in a lot of cases for a guarantor who may be sponsoring deals and doesn't want anybody to know about it. Even if it's through a corp or whatever it is, um, that can kind of be found through title search and other different layers of, of research. So you know, if you want to be quote unquote a silent partner, it's the easiest way to be to be silent is to not have any ownership in the deal or in the in the site. Love that. Let's go to the last one here. As a co-signer, I'm typically used for very weak primary applicants, meaning that main person on the application who's going to move into that property. I am there helping them move in. Yeah, so you're actively boosting the underwriting basically of the deal. A guarantor is generally used for relatively strong primary applicants who just need a little bit of a boost. So more common for sophisticated deal sponsorship, GPLP stuff, more investment heavy um, you know, transaction types, I would say. For sure. And now there's a few other differences we need to go over because this stuff gets a little complicated when you get into the weeds here. There's also co-signer versus co-borrower. Now, both a co-signer and a co-borrower are liable for repayment of the loan. Their incomes, their credit histories, along with those of the primary borrower will be considered when determining the loan terms. A co-borrower can receive the proceeds of the loan and they process the ownership rights to the object of the loan. Often a primary borrower and a co-borrower have joint ownership of the item in question. An example of this is two people buying a home together. On the other hand, a co-signer has no ownership rights to the loan item, even though they will be on title. Make sense? Makes sense, yeah. I, I'm i not actually sure how well that checks out, like in regards to joint tenancy, tenants in common, et cetera. But, you know, I mean, I think an easier way to, to look at it as well is a co-signed mortgage versus a joint mortgage. So a joint mortgage is like what you would um, you would have if you were cohabitating with an individual in that home. It's worth noting the differences between a co-signed mortgage and a joint mortgage. So while a co-signer can own a stake in a home, it's more of an arm's length arrangement. There's probably a contract behind the scenes that stipulates the terms of that ownership. Maybe it's even written into the loan. Um, a joint mortgage, on the other hand, typically involves some level of cohabitation, such as when live-in partners buy a home together. And that's, again, that joint tenants, tenants in common kind of structure, uh, although that's not always the case. Yeah. Now, Dan, you had brought up credit earlier. So Obviously, we're, we're going to touch on credit now. Um, walk us through the, the first piece here. Yeah. So if you co-sign a loan, it will appear on your credit report as well as the primary lender's credit report. The loan will appear on your credit report because you've made a commitment to repay the loan should something go wrong even if you don't intend to pay a cent on that loan, which nobody ever does when they're co-signing. The co-signed loan will increase your total debt load and increase the number of accounts with balances. So it will impact your credit. For sure. And that's, you know, we've, again, th what sparked this episode for me is the amount that I have seen this. And when I started to talk to other professionals in the industry, this is a very prevalent um, thing that we're seeing. So I've had to answer this question many times. Will co-signing a loan negatively affect your credit scores? Well, it can negatively affect your credit scores for two different reasons. When you co-sign a loan, you take responsibility for it in the event that the primary borrower defaults. The co-signed loan will appear on your credit report. This means the negative remarks like late or missed payments will show up on your credit report, which obviously will negatively impact your credit score. So this goes back to having trust, 
and probably some love for that primary borrower because you are taking on risk. They miss a payment. Not only does their credit get hit, so does yours. It is interesting because I think when you, and you might know this better than I do, when- Probably not, but- uh. <laughs> when, you're, when you're doing a mortgage, I think the loan documents really only go to one place. So in an event of a lent, uh, missed payment, sorry, would, you know, would the co-senders even be notified? That's a, yeah, that's, that's a good question. Uh, to be honest, I haven't, I haven't run into that. So. Well, not only does it require trust, but it also requires good communication because you're making the assumption, like, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, if, if a kid misses a, a payment on their house and they're embarrassed and they're scrambling to try and figure out their finances and, you know, they don't notify the co-signer mom and dad in this case, let's say as an example. Um, how would they know? I'm just like, and maybe it's uh, something that our audience can answer. Um, somebody who's an underwriting or at, at a big six. That's, um, but I'm, but I'm curious because I know that some loans will have only one address where these statements go. So it could be too late by, in a lot of cases, where the co-signer ends up getting notification on that. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I would assume that there would be a method of communication from said lender to both parties involved. That would be ideal. And, you know, as soon as a missed payment goes up, I mean, I have co-signers on some of my stuff and we both get mail anytime a mortgage rate changes or anything like that. So you'd think that both parties would be, uh, would you know, would have to acknowledge any changes or there'd be multiple warnings. But yeah, don't have a definite answer for that. So if anyone out there knows, uh, reach out. We'd love we'd love to hear what you have to say. For sure. Now, Dan, what are the negative remarks that can affect your credit score? So a loan is one that's secured. Sorry, a secured loan is one that's backed by an asset of value, such as a house or a vehicle. So it's secured against a home in this case. Um, this means that you know your credit scores may be damaged if loan payments are missed. And there are three ways this can happen with a secured loan. So number one is late payment. So a payment that is more than 30 days overdue may be reported to credit bureaus by the lender. Late, pay late payments are recorded on your credit score and that can hurt your credit score. Number two is asset repossession. If you and the primary borrower continue to miss payments or miss too many payments, uh, that could lead to the lender repossessing the asset secured against the loan, such as a vehicle or a house or taking that to power of sale. If the vehicle or home you co-sign for is repossessed by the lender, this may have a negative impact on your credit scores. And the language, I think, coming from this source says, may it will have a, have a yeah. negative is, impact on this. Is this where they send like dog the bounty hunter after after you to- I think that's very much you know a bit more of a US thing. Um, I, <laughs> I think, think we, you know, so we did talk about um, power of sale versus foreclosure. And there are areas in Canada where you, that you do see the foreclosure process, BC and Alberta, a couple of other provinces. Um, Ontario being Canada's largest real estate market, we actually have power of sale, not foreclosure. Um, and fun fact, they're increasing substantially right now. So it's a, it, almost mm -hmm. like a hockey stick graph. Um, anyway, um, the last way that you, that you can end up in that position is if accounts are sent to collections. So when loan payments are missed, the lender may get a collections agency involved to go after your borrower in default, and they'll try and register that um, against your, your bureau as well. Since you've co-signed for the loan, it would be registered against you, the co-signer, and the collection account will be opened on your credit report, which in turn would hurt your credit score. Now, going to the kind of the last segment here, last but certainly not least, here are three very important ways that you can remove a co-signer off your loan. Again, another question, right? Everyone, it's funny, people are hesitant to take co-signers. I, I talked to a lot of first-time home buyers. 
And, you know, sometimes they fall 30, 50, 100 grand short. And that shortfall could quite easily be made up by bringing a strong cosigner on. So, hey, are mom and dad still employed? Do they own a house? What's their situation like? But there's always this hesitation. I don't want to bring mom and dad in on this. or I don't want to bring whoever in on this. Um, Well, bring them in to get the deal done. But there are ways to get them off at a certain time when it makes sense. Let's go through them. So to kickstart the process in getting a cosigner off of your loan and assuming the full responsibility for your loan, there are a few steps to go through. Depending on the result of the first step, you may have a few, you may have to navigate a few more, but be sure to read the, this full list. Um, Dan, start us off here with the first one. So check if the cosigner or if the loan has a cosigner release. So check the communications in your original agreement. Um, this is when the primary borrower is released from their cosigner obligations. If your loan does not have a cosigner release, reach out to your lender and request the process to be started. Your lender will likely want you to provide updated credit information, income verification, and a letter of explanation. You're honestly, in a lot of cases, redoing the underwriting of the deal because you're mm-hmm. taking two of the, the borrowers, you know, in quotation marks, out of the equation. Um, and in a lot of cases over the past 20 years, when house prices were increasing, it was super common for people to co-sign for just one year as an example. You know, mom and dad would come on the deal, boost the income on the way in, house would go up in value 10, 15%. The loan to value was now not a high, high ratio mortgage. And the, the numbers worked a lot better for, for the borrower after a year or two, mom and dad could be taken off the loan. Yeah. Now, if you... If your lender doesn't have that cosigner release that Dan was just asking, ask your, sorry, if your loan doesn't have that cosigner release, ask your lender about it. Now, some lenders will let you release that cosigner if you meet certain requirements, such as uh, a certain number of on-time payments or having a certain credit score. Now, if your lender doesn't offer a cosigner release, you may be able to refinance your loan with a lender that does. But this would essentially be redoing the entire process. Like Dan just said, you'd be subject to the deal being re-underwritten all over again. What's the last option we've got here, Dan? The last one is a full refinance. So basically in this situation, you are looking to release yourself from a co-signer on the property and, and comp- completely and you refinance. So when you refinance, you're able to take out a new loan with a new interest rate in your own name and release the co-signer from their obligation to the existing debt on the property. Um, it's a great way to increase your credit score and get on the path to financial freedom. It does come with a couple of extra challenges. Obviously, you're redoing a, um, the underwriting of a deal. You'll have to pay a penalty if your mortgage was closed and has a has a penalty to break that mortgage. Um, and the rate, I mean, might not be as good as it was. You know, I ended up in this situation myself on a couple of deals, not really thinking about the macro world. And thinking about interest rates moving up, just thinking, oh, I'm going to go from, I'm in a B lender right now. I'm going to go step up to an A lender. And I did on that deal, step from a B to an A, but the timing of the rates was so, so off that I, my rate was actually higher with the A that I ended up renewing at. So why didn't you just try to time the market? Like, like everyone else, what are you doing? It's funny because I, <laughs> I researched this stuff so much and it just like slipped my mind that I should probably be taking a, you know, a five-year fixed on on this investment property. When I, when I renewed, I went for a shorter term fixed thinking, okay, I'm B right now. I should be, I, I, I should have the cash flows on this deal. Good to go to get into an A in two years, not thinking, oh, A rates aren't, aren't even going to be as good as B rates are. A rates in two years aren't going to be as good as B rates are today. Right. 
that was two years ago. Um, so now that we've got a good understanding of co-signing, who needs it, why people do it, how to get rid of a co-signer, how people have used it historically, how it affects your credit, so on and so forth. Let's move on to the final segment of the show. Um, you know, the original saying was drive till you qualified, which was similar to the idea of driving for dollars, which is pretty much just you drive until prices start to make sense, whether that's for your single family home, your duplex, your your larger multifamily or industrial property or whatever. But pretty much you get in the car and go. Well, we've got a new one. Cosign till you qualify. Yeah, so cosign till you qualify is basically you add people to the mortgage until you can buy what you want to buy. And <laughs> this is not an endorsement of this practice, but more so coming up with a funny saying for a major trend that we've been witnessing in the mortgage and real estate space. And we are seeing it now more than ever. Uh, this goes back to the affordability problem we opened the episode with. Since last March, mortgage rates have gone from 0.5% to 4.25%. And that hasn't helped, obviously. But Canadian housing obsession and the dream of homeownership, this fetishization of owning a house in Canada has, hasn't shifted down like the markets and consumer sentiment has. This all started a while back in 2018, Nick, with something called B20 or the stress test. Yes, and stressful it has become indeed. So in an effort to, you know, we put a lot of research into these episodes and sometimes, you know, we complain about this all the time. There's not enough data points in Canada to really put good stuff together. But, um, you know, me being the young mortgage agent that I am, I reached out to some of the OGs in the space, Vince Gaetano from Owl Mortgage. Shout out Vince. I was just on a great podcast with him uh, over the weekend. Guy is a wealth of knowledge, Hall of Famer. And I reached out to him. I said, look, Vince, we're putting an episode together on co-signing. I've started to see it more than ever before. Everyone else I've started to, everyone else I've spoken to about it sees it more now than they have in, you know, the last five, 10, 15 years. Um, what, what's going on and, and why can't I find any banking or CMHC or even Stats Canada data on this stuff, right? Is, is it something that it's almost like shadow ban? Like they don't want to report how many people are co-signing because maybe it doesn't look great. It's, it's too propped up, but. Anyways, this is this is kind of loosely what Vince responded with. Now, the major correlation between multiple co-signers on title has really been since the introduction of the stress test uh, back in 2018, with the government suggesting that they are all investors, even though what we spoke about earlier, right, that 1%, you're only a 1% beneficial owner. So Dan, if you come in and co-sign a property for me, I own 99% of that property. You own 1% of that property. I live there full time. It's my it's my primary residence. I'm I'm there having coffee every morning. Would you consider yourself an investor in that property because you co-signed it for me? That's a good question. I mean, I think I don't the think answer, that the answer is the answer is no. I should set you up for that one better. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I understand it's a rhetorical rhetorical question, but. Um, I, and I don't think that most people who are co-signing consider themselves to be an active investor or, or a passive or even silent investor in in these deals, right? Um, yeah. And so that, that part I find exceptionally interesting. So after we saw the introduction of, of that stress test, investors jumped from 12% on all new purchases to 26%, more than doubling. Now, were those actual investors or was that 
mom and dad co-signing. Let's, yeah. Let's hop over to Jordan, another another good friend of the show here. So it is interesting that you mentioned that that piece of the because there was an article that came out recently that said and I and I actually shared the article just like to cuz I I kind of just share things objectively to get people's feedback and people were like this you know they're using multi-property ownership so if somebody owns more than one property they would call them in quotes an mm-hmm. investor right so you own a house in you know Toronto and you own a cottage in Muskoka and you're they they call that on paper an investor because you are a multi-property owner um, now all of a sudden you own a house in Toronto and you also co-sign on your kid's house in the, you know, in the GTA or in Toronto. And now all of a sudden you, because your name is on title for two properties, you are in quotation marks an investor based on the data because you're a multi-property owner, but it's not. And so when you hear them saying, oh, investors are one third of all property ownership now or whatever it is, I mean, it's not really exactly the the case. And so there's a bit of sensationalization behind that data. Um, you know, going backwards a little bit to, you know, on another friend from the show, Jordan Scrinko, precondo.ca, their Toronto real estate prices article shows basically in, it shows a chart where Toronto affordability of condos versus detached expressed as basically median price multiple. The last time, uh, it was actually a higher multiple in 2017 than it is currently, even though prices are, did bubble up a little bit more during 2022 uh, on the detached side. Right during that period of time, um, the detached prices started to dive basically exactly at the time when the fair housing plan was announced. And then it regressed further as the mortgage stress test was was announced and subsequently in, implemented. And there's nothing spontaneous, it's, this article is saying, about a market change following closely after government rolls out new legislation taking aim at the housing market. So kind of impacted sentiment a little bit there, but it also, because of the stress test, basically reduced borrowing power significantly. And we're seeing the same impact happen right now where borrowing power is being reduced significantly organically because rates are moving up. It's not just policy that's moving or, or suppressing that borrowing power. It's actually real interest rates, the real cost of borrowing with the stress test on top um, that's that's suppressing that borrowing power. So um, the mortgage stress test... Uh, it it took 20% out of the buying power with higher qualification standards. That's a ton. Uh, we have seen a bigger reduction in buying power presently, but it gives you an understanding of wh- why the market is, you know, prices came down 2017, 2018, and the market was very flat during that period of time. It, I, don't, I still don't understand when people say Canadian real estate market only goes up because it, it, it went down pr- pretty severely, Clearly, pretty severely yeah. in recent history. Um, you know, it impacted the detached market, especially negatively, especially in the GTA, where we're seeing a huge run up in um, in luxury properties, and you know there was tax also aimed at the foreign ownership market. Um, but the condo market dropped respectively, and then it ran harder thereafter. Um, so, at a household income of one hundred fifty thousand, you'd be qualified for a one point a one million dollar home prior to the stress test. After the stress test. is what you qualify for with that same income of $150,000. So now you've been pushed out of the detached market and into the condo market, or you're looking at a much longer commute into the GTA or even further. Yeah. Now the stress test was introduced to, you know, quote unquote, cool the housing market. The intention was actually to help out the first time buyers, but it did the opposite. And 
It has continued to do the opposite since its inception. Not only did it make it harder to qualify for mortgage as a first-time buyer with no existing home equity, but it also increased the demand in the condo market, which is, of course, where most first-time buyers are looking at. And I don't think that's just a Toronto thing. I think that's probably most urban city centers across the country. Um, you know, you're, you're, it's, that, it's that classic housing, you know, what's the first rung of that housing ladder? A condo. The challenge with that first rung of the housing ladder is like entry level product is the most competitive product. So you're you have more activity at the price floor because you have first time buyers, you have investors, and you have downsizers all fighting for that same product mm-hmm. in that one market, right? Which is the cheap product that you can use as a rental property that you can downsize in into. You know, it's typically bungalow or condo product, um, but something that's that's cheap and accessible for the the broadest number of, of purchasers is going to end up becoming a very crowded product or an oversubscribed product. And that's how you saw that that price growing from the bottom. And what happened after the first layer of the mortgage stress test, the so B20 came out, it, they added the stress test to high ratio borrowers. So basically anybody who is putting less than um, 20% down on a, on a house, which you know typically is going to be first or maybe second time home buyers, people who don't have a ton of cash or equity saved yet. And now all of a sudden, those buyers are have their borrowing power reduced, and the remainder of the market, who has all the equity and money and net worth accumulated, that isn't that doesn't need to stretch to to buy houses, is at an advantage. And so, shortly thereafter, I think it was four months later in January of that year, I think it was like they they did it in September for first time buyers, and then in January they leveled the whole playing field and applied that stress test to all borrowers, and that was kind of the next hit. Right? It was like okay this thing's the final nail per se. And then the market basically traded sideways there for what? Until until we got into emergency monetary policy rates. <laughs> yeah, great points, Dan. So, I mean, look, now we have an understanding of what it is, why people are doing it. More people are doing it than ever before. What are your final thoughts on this? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it necessary? Or is it just a product of the environment that we are living in? What What are your final takeaways here, Dan? I think it's just evidence that we're basically in a housing crisis, in a crisis situation where people have to, they, they, you know, when people say beg, borrow and steal, it's like, okay, that's, that's basically what's happening here. They're doing everything possible to realize the Canadian dream of homeownership. They're begging, maybe begging mom and dad. They're borrowing, maybe borrowing from mom and dad, right? <laughs> so begging for a cosign, borrowing a down payment or stealing in a lot of cases, which is committing fraud for shelter, which you know, we've talked about a number of times on this episode. And you know, the more I hear about this stuff happening, the more I hear about these like systemic changes, these secular shifts that you know, everybody has to cosign, it, it, it makes me think, okay, we're, in a, we're now in a, a housing market that's so late cycle that, or so late stage that you have to have multi-generational exposure just to get an asset. And, you know, we hear about Justin Trudeau talking about this multi-generational housing policy, the grant that they're trying to do to, you know, push for DIY density so people can create in-law suites for their elderly parents to move home um, rather than having to go into the the care home system. Um, all of these things signal to me that Canada is moving towards a late-stage capitalistic economy that is a high institutional ownership, high investment ownership, and low home ownership. So we're going to see a decrease in the home ownership rate over the next several decades, regardless of even if we see a huge housing crash. I still think the writing is on the wall that we're heading to that late stage 
I mean, you know, people get conspiratorial about it with the, like the WEF stuff on the WEF stuff on um, TikTok and whatever, like you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. And maybe there's merit to that. But the, the reality is like, a lot of economies end up going that direction. Not that there's anything wrong with it. I actually don't think most people are cut out for home ownership. Um, but that seems to be the direction we're heading. Low home ownership, high investment, high institutional ownership. So what we're here to do is teach people how to get into becoming one of those investment owners and, and doing it right to create social value. Love it. I think that is a great place to end it. As always, everyone, thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed making it. Rate us five stars and write us a small review. And if you want to chat with either Dan and I, we are accessible. So reach out to the show, uh, the emails in the show notes. Until next time, thanks so much. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317. Agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.